This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Teachers Talk Radio. It is Monday, 23rd October, and you're listening to the Monday Morning Break with me, Kanto Kutik. Today, we'll be talking about personal language learning styles, English for creative professionals, and the difference between coaching and language teaching. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Hello again, everybody, and here we are. It is a Monday, and I hope you are having a good Monday wherever you are. I'm a bit under weather, so I'm sounding a bit hoarse, but here I am, and today we have a very exciting guest. I believe she's a very exciting guest because we are going to be talking about personal language learning styles. Now, you know, the way different people have different styles, you know, some people are morning people. Some people are totally not morning persons. They prefer to work at night. And it seems that with language learning, we all learn languages differently. We have a style. And I have somebody here who is going to be talking to us about what this means and how this affects how we learn language. Um, Sarah, are you there yet? Sarah, say something. Hi, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. You're a little faint. I hope you're on your um, headphones, on your mic. Um, you're a little bit faint, but it's really great to have you here on this lovely Monday. Sarah, before um, we begin with anything at all, tell us who you are, how you got into teaching English as a foreign language. I will. Hey, so yeah, I'm using my headphones. It might be that the sound is better without, actually, so let me know if you want me to change it. But I'll start with my introduction and I hope everybody can hear me okay. So um, as many of us, I became an English teacher, not because I wanted to, but because I sort of um, stumbled into it. I studied um, English literature and linguistics, but I never, ever actually wanted to be a teacher. I just started teaching as a side job and really took to it. I really enjoyed it. And so um, I worked for about eight years at a private language school teaching a lot of different sort of uh, business English settings, general English settings, and uh, eventually got my Cambridge Delta, and then eventually decided to strike out on my own and, uh, yeah, become self-employed as a language coach. Okay. So just like very many other teachers of EFL that I know who work um, with adults, um, do you find, I mean, you're one of the few people I know who's got a degree in English language and linguistics. Um, do you find that your degree has equipped you better to teach English to adults, to, eat, to teach the English language to adults? Um, I don't think the degree is necessary. I mean, definitely not the academic degree of linguistics, um, but it is helpful in you know, sharpening the way that we look about, at language or we think about language. For example, you know, like a lot of our learners come to us with a very normative view on languages, right? Like they think there's good English and there's bad English and uh, for them, notions of correctness are very important. And for me, when I was studying linguistics, um, I really learned to love the variety and the many, many different forms that languages take, and especially also the English language, which has so many different varieties in the world. And um, from a linguistic standpoint, you really learn to cultivate this curiosity and openness. And I think that really helps in teaching practice and then also being able to impart the same sort of curiosity and language maybe to our learners and help them form a more positive view maybe of their own accents or the variety of English that they are learning or speaking. Mm. That's really interesting what you say there, Sarah, because, you know, um, I work with young people who are 
training, right? They're training to be teachers. They're going to go into public schools here in Germany and, mm -hmm. and teach English um, as a second language, as a foreign language. And many of them do question why they're doing all these courses. They they have a very comprehensive, um, how would you say, a very comprehensive timetable schedule of work that they have to do covering everything from linguistics, you know, history of the English language, applied linguistics, things like social linguistics. They cover pedagogy and then various aspects of literature. And mm -hmm. when I think mm -hmm. about it, a lot of the literature that my students are doing um, is not being covered that much in school anymore. So they question that, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I, I'm still looking for the answer to give them. I like what you say about the curiosity because um, I myself did not plan on becoming an English teacher like many, <laughs> you said it at the beginning, we all just kind of stumbled into it. And then I discovered yeah. I was good at it. But I found that my own degree in linguistics and, and um, English linguistics doesn't necessarily give me the input into the output that I give my students, but it has given me, like you said, that curiosity and maybe yes, the critical think thinking skills. The critical thinking skills, the curiosity, definitely, but also, I mean, the toolkit. I mean, we do learn. Um, so I remember also like studying alongside a lot of uh, students um, who were uh, training to be teachers and a lot of them really resented these sort of you know, deep theoretical uh, linguistics courses that they had to take or the, the courses in literature that were so very, very specific. I mean, like, you know, are you really going to need um, all of this knowledge about, I don't know, Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley when you're in an English classroom later on in your career? But I think each of the courses, they, they help us um, learn how to study the subject that we're studying, how to learn language, how to take things apart, and then eventually also how to teach them. And I think um, that is along with the curiosity, as you say, uh, and the critical thinking mm. skills is very, very valuable. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and together with that curiosity, Sarah, have you yourself learned any other language other than English as a foreign language? Any other language <laughs> at all? Um, yeah, definitely. I had um, French in school and I, after school, I never really had any very particular reason to learn, uh, to, to really speak French, which is why I, it's not, uh, my French is not stellar though. I'm, I'm always surprised actually at how much there still is. For example, I was in Belgium a few weeks ago and then suddenly all of this French came out of me that I didn't even realize was still there, so it must have been um, hiding somewhere. Um, then I took a little bit of Spanish. However, that was uh, that was gobbled up by the Italian that I then learned, and that's been my my language learning project for the past few years. I've been learning Italian, which I've now managed to get to like a sort of B2 level, which is really, really nice because I'm now um, with my Italian sort of getting into the level that my learners have. Uh, when they start with me. So I, I, I work with upper intermediate to advanced learners. And for me, and I, I think you'll agree, Kendrick, I'd, I'd be interested to hear. Um, I think it's very important that we as, as language teachers, we know what that feels like, right? Like, especially with my upper intermediate and advanced learners, this feeling of being able to follow everything around you, like understand even complex conversations and discourse, but having what you are actually actively able to say and produce being so much more limited, right? And that's where I really, where I'm at at the moment with my Italian is uh, that, that gap of passive and active. I, I can really feel that and I, I can really, so for me, it was a project learning Italian, like to be able to reconnect with that feeling of um, maybe frustration that a lot of our learners have at this level. Mm. That's really interesting. It's, it's similar to the conversation we had um, on WhatsApp not too long ago, where you said something and it was exactly what I was thinking at the same time. Um, I and, and would you say then that that is because of having learned another language other than English and other than our first language that makes us um, good language teachers? Do, I mean, 
what I'm trying to say with this is, um, would you recommend that if anybody were to teach English as a foreign language or any language, that they need to first be a learner in order to to understand and and to feel the pain, so to speak? Yes. Again, I wouldn't say it's 100% necessary, but I would really highly recommend everybody. I mean, I've, I've met and seen a few teachers, maybe my old colleagues from the language school where, yeah, there are good teachers who only speak English and never made much of an effort to learn another language, even if they live in another country um, mm -hmm. and just sort of, you know, glide by, surf by, get by on their English. Um, but I, I do think it makes us better teachers. And I think it also helps put our learners at ease. And I think this is really, really important. It was, again, one of the main um, reasons that I decided to work on my Italian, because I um, have a lot of Italian friends and, you know, mm -hmm. I was always speaking English with them and they were constantly apologizing for their bad English. And then I thought like, okay, how about, you know, I'm there ap apologizing for my bad Italian, like just to, you know, just to see what that does. And um, I do find it, um, yeah, it's, it's quite empowering also for learners and very inspiring when they see that we are learners, right? Like when they see that we are always working on something, whether it's getting another qualification in, um, in English or working on something completely different. I know that for example, with the pandemic, one of my sort of pet projects, just because I needed something to do, was I was trying to learn handstands. And it was a very difficult learning journey. But like, I remember having some useful conversations with learners around that time. And like, they were able to sort of, I think, get something out of me just even sharing that I was working on handstands. Um, and, you know, I mean, it's like, I think it's important, like, to cultivate a sense of lifelong learning. Learning is mm -hmm. positive, learning is great, learning is inspiring, and we're not learning because we have a deficit, we're not learning because we're bad at something, but because we're learning because we want to get better at things because it's fun and it's it's human. So I think it definitely helps when, when learners see us as language learners as well. I totally agree with you there. I, I do see that with, with my, my own learners, you know, when, when I'm in the classroom going through the English grammar or I teach, you know, um, classroom language, to trainee teachers and when I say something in German um, just to exemplify or illustrate something and I say to them now don't mind me and my articles I've, I've never got them but I'm still <laughs> learning and, and they, they giggle to themselves you know and, and I tell them and yeah you know I'm still taking my German class and and I'm at B2 and um, I share with them um, a lot of the time the learning dip and rise have, have you heard about that mm -hmm. activity? Mm -hmm. Sarah, um, I read it um, um, in, 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 in a book on teaching language critically or something like that. And the learning it was a, dip and rise. The say? learning dip and rise. It mm -hmm. was, it is an activity that you could do, should do at the beginning of any class, um, of any course, actually. Mm -hmm. And what you do is you draw, you know, like a bell curve, but the upside down one. So you know, mm -hmm. where you start at the top and then you dip. So that's what it's called, the learning dip and rise. Mm -hmm. So if you imagine that you're you're at a certain point and you go straight for a while and then you go down and you're kind of in that valley for a while. So it's not a, a sharp point at the end, but it's kind of rounded and you go up slowly, but your rise is really, really slow and then it plateaus out again. That's basically called the learning dip and rise. And it's supposed to, to illustrate for you that at the beginning of any course you're enthusiastic you know you're ready to learn and maybe you've got a good momentum the first couple of weeks and then at a certain point where say if you were a university student or you if you were in employment and you're taking the language course or any other course really alongside your day-to-day -day work and lives that at some point something's got to give right so these, you know, the amount of homework that you've got to do or, or the self-study that you're doing, it starts to dip. Mm -hmm. And maybe your motivation will dip too and your interest. And the important thing to recognize is that when you get into this dip, you're there possibly for a while because you don't come out. It's, it's not like, mm -hmm. whoosh, I fall in and I'm back out again. Um, mm -hmm. But it's just, you know, in there and you're in this valley for a while and as I say to my students, and you see, if you look at that bell, upside down bell curve, the rise is really, really mm -hmm. slow, 
right? It's mm -hmm. not a regular rise of X percent every week, but it's steep, it's hard going. Mm -hmm. And then you come back up again and that's called the learning dip and rise. And and that's that's really the reality of it. I mean, I've had that with my German classes. I've had that when I did Swedish during the pandemic. I mean, you did handstands, I did Swedish. I'm not sure which yeah. one is more useful. <laughs> well, <laughs> I didn't here. succeed. How about you? <laughs> well, you see, at least for me with the Swedish, I can at least say that I'm A1 on the common European framework. I'm not sure oh. where you would put your handstand. But um, <laughs> we're going to go into the, the next segment. Um, and in the next segment, I'd, I'd like to talk about personal language learning style. Okay, so mm -hmm. just give me a second. We're going to um, think about personal language learning styles. In today's educational environment, students and teachers are juggling a mix of face-to-face, -face, online and blended learning courses. Canvas by Instructure helps teachers navigate these diverse learning experiences with a user-friendly virtual learning environment that offers flexible access to courses and a consistent learning experience, all while streamlining everyday teaching processes. The world's best schools and universities are using Canvas to create dynamic courses, collaborate seamlessly, and access actionable data that drives student success. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. Are you looking for lesson planning materials to kickstart the new term? We've got you covered. The Day is a global online resource that turns the news into lessons. We're offering listeners a free resource on Andrew Tate that you can find on thedaynews.co forward slash Tate. Inspire personal development and critical thinking for your students by downloading the Tate Debate today and feel more confident addressing sensitive topics with your class. Visit thedaynews.co forward slash Tate to find out more. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. The Guardian reports on AQA plans to have pupils complete parts of some exams digitally in 2026. The announcement from England's biggest exam board means exams could begin to look very different, as it says it will begin testing GCSE students on laptops for a small number of courses from next year. Parts of GCSE Italian and GCSE Polish by 2026 with other subjects, potentially English, likely to be included by 2030. The exam board said technology and change are two constants in education and that moving to digital exams is the next step. According to the Guardian report, pupils will still be supervised in an exam room and will be offline, so they will not be able to access search engines or artificial intelligence tools. Some head teachers have welcomed the move, with Askell describing it as encouraging, as reliance on pen and paper was outdated, but others have been less convinced. Melissa Pruntig, chair of the National Handwriting Association, made the link between handwriting, reading and spelling, particularly at ages between four and six. She also said that the key to writing, either by hand or typing, was speed and fluency, and pointed out that it's not something that you can just roll out and think it's inclusive. You have to teach typing and it needs practice. Since the announcement, professionals and researchers, as well as teachers, have continued the debate on social media. Secondary school performance data for England has been in the headlines, with the TES magazine presenting analysis of the results after a three-year pandemic hiatus. The article highlights a variety of trends and points to consider, but also warns against making basic comparisons between schools as many face ongoing disruptions post-COVID. The key points include a widening of the disadvantage gap, now at its widest since 2011. Unions, school leaders and educational researchers all expressed dismay at this and called on government and prospective governments to make this 
a core focus moving forward. EBAC entries have stagnated in the latest figures. The Department for Education has set a target of students entering the EBAC subjects at 75% for 2024 and 90% in 2027. The new data shows that current figures are at 39.3%, with languages continuing to be the main stumbling block. Regional differences also remain. The North East has the lowest average Progress 8 score and Outer London has the highest. This north-south gap has increased since the pandemic. However, some more detailed analysis of like-for-like -like schools in the north and south suggests comparable outcomes when other factors such as prior attainment are taken into consideration. There was a difference in progress for boys and girls, with girls achieving an average of one-tenth of a grade more than expected. Attainment 8 also dropped as a result of Ofqual's approach to returning exams to normal following COVID. Full details of the TES analysis can be found online. The Guardian also carried a report on changes to how poor behaviour will be responded to in the state of California in the United States. At least 25 states and the District of Columbia allow schools to suspend pupils for willful defiance. But California has become the first state to ban such suspensions for all students. The definition of willful defiance has been criticised by US education researchers as being overly broad, and they have also made links to the use of suspensions being disproportionate in some ethnic groups. The article prompted debate on X, formerly known as Twitter, amongst many in education, although the impact of California's discussions and decisions will only be revealed over time. Finally, the BBC reports that blue shirts and chinos have been banned by Cardiff University Students' Union due to dangerous behaviour from some students. Any people wearing the outfit, typically associated with some sports clubs, will be refused entry to its Wednesday night club night. The Student Union has said the measure is temporary and in response to the behaviour of some male students earlier this month. Since the ban, a marked improvement in behaviour has been seen. The ban does not apply to any buildings other than the Students' Union, which acts independently of the university. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. And here we are back again. Mm -hmm. So, tell me, Sarah, what do you mean by personal language learning style? Is it like being a morning person or a night person <laughs> or liking a particular style of music? Um, that's what could be involved in it. Um, I'll def I'd like to start with uh, what it's not, and that's uh, if uh, some colleagues are listening and uh, thinking that this is about learning styles. It's not. So learning styles, most of you will know, is a discounted theory where you know we have some visual learners and we have auditory learners and we have kinesthetic learners, and mm -hmm. you know this is uh, a theory that was popular for a while and that a lot of people still still seem to think it's true, even though it's been widely discounted. Um, so that's what it's not about. I'm just borrowing part of the okay. name. <laughs> um, no, what I mean by personal language learning style is basically what do you like as a person? What methods and topics and activities are you actually attracted to and make you feel good about yourself and your learning? Because I think that's massively important and really, really underrated still in a lot of what we um, see in the in, in learning materials. And I think what's, what's done in classrooms is that we don't factor in letting learners choose what they actually want to do so that mm. we get a better fit between them as people um, and their learning objectives and actually getting them to you know stay motivated and stay inspired throughout their learning journeys okay i'll come back i'll come back to that but but i'd like to to just cross the bridge a little over to what you said about that you know those defunct ideas about Mm -hmm. people being auditory learners, kinesthetic learners, and things like that. Um, I'm going to try and link the two, because as you were describing it, my first thought was, but doesn't ourself as, you know, do we not, you know, whether we're auditory, kinesthetic, um, analytic learners, do we not then prefer materials 
or tools that mm -hmm. reflect our learning styles. So for example, if I was um, a visual learner, then maybe for me, everything with lots of pictures, um, all those YouTube videos, you know, grammar explanations online in video format, wouldn't that be something that I like better? Uh, so my question is, surely mm -hmm. those two things are linked, the choices I make and the type of, you know, psychologically, the type of learner I am. Aren't they linked? Yes and no, but I think the important thing is to realize that the there isn't um, a physiological or a psychological or neurological reality to people having different types of brains and that mm -hmm. this is sort of fixed at birth and that this is the person we are. Um, and I think that's the harm in the learning style theory that a lot, a lot, a lot of people still think is true. Um, is that, you know, some people think, oh, I'm a visual learner, so I can never learn anything from audio only, or no, I'm an auditory learner, so it doesn't help me to look at pictures. This is just not true. It's scientifically not true. Actually, for all of us, it's helpful to have, you know, multiple sort of sensory forms of input. Um, mm -hmm. But what is definitely true is that different people have different kinds of preferences. Um, so does it come out to the same thing? I don't think so, because I think it's very, very important at any part of, in any part of this, to realize that it's about making choices. So, you know, the fact, for example, that for you, maybe it's beneficial to use lots of different colors in your learning materials. It's, um, it's a choice that you make. It's a time that you choose to invest maybe in making your vocabulary notes, you know, really beautiful mm -hmm. with lots of different, I, I don't know, like having a color coded system. This is because you love it and because it's going to help you show up for your learning habits, show up for your homework, show up for your learning goals and not because this is what your brain requires. And I think it's an important thing because it gives us more of an idea of, you know, we can design our own learning journey. We can, you know, we can be the authors of our own success here. And we're not limited by like the type of brain we have. And I think that's really important. Okay. I really like that. So, I, I mean... feel all, I, I feel, I just feel totally guilty now because we started <laughs> um, back at university two weeks ago and there was me in, in the first week saying to all my students in all my classes, you need an exercise book and I need you to have a pen and I need you to <laughs> take down these notes because you've got this exam, you know, um, at the end of January. So there was me in -hmm. effect. Um, now I'm going to put this out there in the world. There's me imposing <laughs> my personal learning style onto my students and now that you say it like that right um so this thing with with having a notebook where i write things in i have and and i was so proud of this notebook i was showing it to all my students and i was saying look i'm a teacher i've been teaching 25 years and still for every class i teach i have one notebook i have my red pen my blue pen and my black pen i was also proud of it and it was just me saying you know you've got to do this um Without actually, and, and I think the way you've described it, um, my rationale was really, this is a learning strategy. Not necessarily mm -hmm. a language learning strategy. It's a strategy for any new thing that you learn. But this is a mm -hmm. learning strategy. This is an effective learning strategy. And here you mm -hmm. are, you're now telling me that different people um, have, you know, used different cues um, develop mm -hmm. different strategies. Mm -hmm. But what I'm getting from you here is that people have got to find their own strategy. Yes. Is that right? Because my mean, students, they all just lapped it up. They were like, ooh, get an exercise book. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Um, first of all, thank you um, for coming clean, uh, kind of uh, <laughs> about, you know, uh, imposing um, a method on your students like that and sharing something from your own practice. I think it's um, uh, it's something that we at some point have all been guilty of, uh, me included. Um, but I think there is an important element. And I mean, you can definitely recommend something that you know is a really powerful learning strategy, right? But then you can bring mm -hmm. in the element of choice, making sure that your students choose something that's going to be really attractive for them. For example, um, when I'm uh, so vocabulary plays um, a very, very, very big role in, in my um, 
in my language coaching. So I think it's the part that I focus on. It's what I want to help people grow because yeah, we need words if we want to express ourselves. So <laughs> that's why mm-hmm. my focus yeah. is always on vocabulary. And I definitely have a process that I recommend, um, something called the gold list method, which a lot of you will be familiar with and the rest of you can look up the gold list method. Um, and this together with another thing that I always recommend, which is write down full example sentences that are personal and specific to you. So this is mm-hmm. something, let's just focus on the second one as an example, right? Like, so when you are trying to learn a new word or a new expression, you should write down a full meaningful sentence that holds personal meaning for you. Um, but I would give my learners the choice of like, where are you going to write the sentence down? Do you want to buy a beautiful notebook for yourself? Now me, I got excited when you were talking about the notebook and the three different colored pens. Like this is what I live for, right? Like I go through a, you know, I go to like a a cute stationery store and I start to salivate. This is me Mm -hmm. as a person, but not everybody has this reaction, right? Like some people see paper and just get kind of triggered because paper is something that they've always associated with unsuccessful learning. Um, we were just listening, sorry, but like in the news section, uh, you know, they were talking about uh, handwriting versus typing and yeah. how, you know, we just must allow also uh, for the difference in the preferences that people have there. It's like some people really just don't write like writing by hand and that maybe um, getting these people to type or even have the vocabulary list in their phones using an app or just using, you know, a note system that they choose themselves. If it's something that they like, that they feel excited when they open this document or when they open this app and when they have a positive reaction to it, I think it's more likely that they are going to show up for it over time. Um, then, you know, for example, if you have a student who struggles to even bring um, a pen to class with them, they're not going to remember to carry that notebook around with them wherever they go. Um, so, but they, they might be more successful if they have this vocabulary list in their phones, you know, so I think it's always important to just let them choose. Um, mm. even if you recommend a strategy but then you know let them choose where they execute it mm. you've given me a lot of food for thought there um, <laughs> um well, I'm just going to have to rethink I've got to rethink <laughs> what I tell my students now in the first week of class um, but a couple of things you mentioned right the student who struggles to bring a pen yes um, I had mm-hmm. that I had that in the first week I had this this young man you know about I mm-hmm. think he was about 18 19 years old and I looked at him and it's so different from decades ago when you come into class either as a learner yourself or as a teacher and and you see, you know, other people at the desk around you and they've all taken out their pencil case and their notebooks Mm. and all. And and so I I have this student in my class and and everybody had something in front of them, even if it was a water bottle. And this student was just this student on his own. He... He had nothing, mm. mm-hmm. you know, and I asked him, I don't know why I did. It's, it, it must be me and my thing with the three pens and notebook. Because I said to him, I said, where's your pen? And he just looked at me like, what, what are you talking about? You know, and, and I, then I just, it just came out automatically. I said, do you not come to class with a pen? And he had no reply he just looked at me and and I just you know shook my head and and walked away and was thinking to myself you know these kids these days um (laughs) so (laughs) that was the one thing um it was a rough first week that was the one thing and I love it but at the at the like so how did that student continue in the course um he had learning yeah yeah he continued we're we're in our third week remember things just from hearing them (laughs) well I mean he uh, somehow, uh, at some point during those 90 minutes, he whipped out um, his iPad. So he mm. clearly did come to class with something. I just didn't see it. Mm-hmm. And that brings us back to what you were saying also about, you know, um, having learners save their vocabulary, say, on their phone or something. And um, mm-hmm. the verb you use was getting them to do something, getting Mm -hmm. them to save it on their phone, getting them Mm -hmm. to write it there. And I think for me, what I do is I get my students to make notes in Mm -hmm. a traditional 
paper, pen, notebook, right? And I think I may just need to rethink this. And instead of, for me, saying to myself in my reflection, this is what I'm getting students to do, I think I'm going to have to go one step further and say, I allow them to take notes. Mm -hmm. So I get them to take notes, but I would allow them to take notes and make notes in any way that suits their learning style. How about that? Mm -hmm. I, I think, think I've yeah. learned something from you today. Look at that. <laughs> that makes me really happy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think I th it's important that we're flexible because I think all of us, I believe, have had teachers um, in school. And I mean, school wasn't terrible and traumatic for everybody, but like I think everybody had some teachers that definitely um, were problematic in the sense that they said like, oh, if you want to learn this, you have to do this. Right, like, mm. that. Um, for example, like, you know, my I remember my French teacher, she was a good teacher, but like, she always she forced us to do the thing where you have, uh, you know, two rows of vocabulary and then you uh, two columns and you, you cover one side and then you remember the other word and you said, Oh, yeah, you have to repeat it seven times and your brain needs exactly seven repetitions. The thing was, like, for me, like, if I didn't have a whole sentence, if I didn't have a story and a reason of why I was learning some random piece of French vocabulary like it didn't matter if I was looking at it 27 times I, I, I wasn't remembering it like I hated this I hated this uh, you know covering one side of the page and trying to remember this this word like if it didn't if it was just the the, the she was actually just making us use the list that was already in the book and I didn't I didn't like doing it in the book like I always wanted to do it in my own notebook like I always wanted to write it down and I had a very positive feeling about my notebook but I didn't mm -hmm. have a good feeling about this book and so like um you know luckily for me like I found my own strategies of learning with language but um you know a lot of um a lot of our learners like a lot of the people who come to me now for coaching they were led to believe that they're simply bad at learning languages so they have no talent for language whatever that means um just because you know, their teacher maybe was having them learn in a way that just didn't serve them, you know. Mm. Um, because they weren't doing, mm. sorry to interrupt, but because they yes. weren't doing what the teacher wanted them to do, right? Yes. And because the, the teacher thought like, well, if you want to learn grammar, for example, there's exactly one way to do it. And it's sort of my way or the highway. And um, mm. yeah, I think we, we just, we know more now, don't we? We know more about that. People learn in very different ways, and people have um, people have different preferences. People have different needs, and um, if we um, if we can allow for some flexibility and like helping, guiding people, this is right. Like why I do coaching, you just want to, you want to guide people to find a process that is that is helpful for them, um, so that they will be mm. successful, rather than trying to impose your own how you think everything should be done. And then like some people will just like fall by the wayside if it doesn't work for them and they will leave school or leave the course um, thinking that they failed. Um, that they and failed think, and they just... I, I think in that case, it would be the teacher who failed that student, you know. And I know, sorry, okay, I, I want now... to, oh, no, sorry, I want to make one thing clear, which is that I realized like I, I do one-to-one -one language coaching which I realize is an extremely privileged context. I, I don't want to imply that, you know, school teachers who've got 30 kids in front of them, like it's their responsibility to, uh, you know, find an own individual learning journey for each of those kids. It's just not doable. And so I, sorry, if it sounded like that, that's not what I was saying. But um, I do believe advocating for flexibility and letting our students show us what they need is an important thing that we have to do. Mm. I like what you said there with this advocating for flexibility. My my son is in um, in primary school. He's in elementary school, and um, he's got excellent teachers. Now they've got twenty seven kids. He's in year three in primary school, mm -hmm. and um, the kids know this. My son tells me that different groups of children get different types of homework, mm -hmm. and when I look at the homework that they have to do well it's, it's not called homework it's called self-study right um, <laughs> when I look at the work that they have to do during that self-study period in school and um, the comments that individual students or individual kids get um, I think that 
my son's teachers recognize this whole, you know, personal learning style, mm-hmm. right? And and they've always said to me, so I've, I mean, you know now with me and my notebook and three colored pens, so <laughs> this will come as no surprise. I'm also a proponent of if you've got homework for a particular day, then you jolly well do it and please finish it, <laughs> right? Um, and my son does struggle to finish his homework, um, mm. not because it's difficult, but simply because he doesn't like it. He's when it's I've and I've noticed when it's interesting, he'll do it. He'll do it no problem. Um, when it's tedious, in his opinion, tedious, he'll just do one, and then he'll be like, "Yeah, well, I know it now. Why do I have to do the rest of it?" And yeah. very often, the feedback that we've got from his teacher was that. Um, so here in Germany, for, for listeners who don't know, where we are, the kids get allocated 20 minutes per subject in primary three um, for self-study. So he's got 20 minutes that he's supposed to spend on math and 20 on on German. And he doesn't always finish what's been allocated. But the teacher says he doesn't have to complete it. And my son will be very adamant about it. He'll come back and he'll say, no, my teacher says I don't have to do it. And I'm just absolutely baffled. But, you know, and I think as teachers who work with these kids day in, day out, and now in their third year, they'll know what, you know, the child is capable of. They'll know what the child's limits are. And maybe really this is them expressing that flexibility and maybe I've mm. got to take a page out of their book as well. Possible. And I think something that that also really beautifully illustrates, I think, is the concept of maybe it's good enough. You know, your mm. your little son, like when he's done one of the exercises and he's he's got the feeling of like, yeah, well, like for me, it's enough. I get it now. Um, yeah. And like, you, you know, you come with a different mindset. You think like, well, but like you should, you should do as much as possible. You should do the full homework. Um, but I think it's important also when we're working with our learners, like it doesn't always have to be excellent. You know, it doesn't always have to be perfect. Like whether it's in a, in a school context or whether it's, you know, you've got a professional learner who's working on a presentation, maybe the goal of like preparing for that presentation isn't always that they are going to give the best presentation ever, but the the goal in the preparation will be will get you to the point where you feel like it's good enough that you can do it, mm. you know. Um, and you know, maybe it would be possible to go over it like four more times and take another week to prepare. Or maybe our goal should just be like, yeah, you know what, it's good enough. It's not perfect, but it's good enough. And that that for me is very very important. Like um, with all of my learners, I'm always checking in about like you know, it's like how do you feel about your writing or about this text now you know do you want to go over it again or do you think it's good enough and like a lot of the time they'll say like no it's fine you know and um they have another thing that they want to prioritize in that moment and i think it's important to always like give the learner that autonomy to decide um you know where do they want to invest their time and their focus and um, maybe the presentation is good enough now and that leaves a little bit more time for you know speaking practice or just you know something else that will help them I like that. I like that because I think, right, in many cases, I, I'm not going to say all learners are like this, but but now that you've mentioned it, I think in many cases, people do something or our language learners or learners in general, they do something and they look at it and you'll have the ones who will continue pushing themselves who you know review their work and who'll say, oh no, no, that's not I that's not good enough for me. I want to do better. And then you'll have those who'll review their work and maybe they've spent, you know, invested so much time, spent weeks, spent mm-hmm. days, spent hours on it, where they've come to the point where they're just saying, No, I, I'm good with this now. I've I've had enough. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm going to submit this. And again, that's that's a very personal thing. And yeah. who are we? I mean, on the one hand, you know, as a teacher, I like, I would like to say to my students, I know you can do better. Mm. Yeah, but I, actually, do I really know that they can do better? 
Exactly. Like, and if, if, if we have time, like I have a little anecdote that I think can really illustrate this very well as well, because when we think about like, you can always improve, it can always be better. We're thinking along the sort of linear of we can mm-hmm. make your English better in this context. Mm-hmm. Right. And for example, like I work a lot with artists and I remember, for example, last year I was um, helping somebody uh, who had written, uh, she's Danish and she'd written um a text like a, a an art, artistic text a biographical text that she turned into this little zine and mm-hmm. it was a personal story um uh, of how she came into the punk community like that was the, the text okay. of the, the story and she asked me to sort of proofread it for her and i did and i sent it back to her with feedback and then we went through it together. And what we did then was we sort of negotiated where she was ready to accept my corrections and where she wanted to keep things as they were, because she had moments where she said like, mm, no, this doesn't sound like me anymore. Right. So, and I thought this was so important as well, because part of her English is that it's her English. And, you know, um, sometimes the corrections I was offering were maybe too close to um, you know what my English would be, or what like a right. standard English would be, but they weren't her English anymore. And it was important that we use her vocabulary and the way she would express it, even if it deviated a little bit from like notions of standard. And I thought that's so important. So for me, very often it's a negotiation as well. And I think this this idea of like maybe it's good enough, it's correct enough, is really important as well. Mm. So what we have in, essentially is this distinction between. A teacher saying, you can do better versus mm. this text can be better, mm. right? Because when I think of it now, and, and really this conversation has given me so much food for thought, I say <laughs> to my students all the time, you can do better. Whereas I think essentially what I'm thinking is that work that you've given me can be better. I don't know necessarily if you can do better, honestly, because, you know, maybe, maybe you as a user, a non-native speaker of English, you're struggling with, you know, certain prepositions or you're lacking the vocabulary that you need to express the meanings you've been asked to express. So Mm -hmm. I'm making assumptions. I'm making assumptions based on what I'm able to do with my language. And that's a bit unfair. Mm yeah and 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 thinking of course that you know the definition of better for them mm. you know because for my client with this little punk zine um better wasn't more correct or more native type standard english her version mm. of better was more poetic more evocative more authentic more herself of course in a way where it was still you know understandable by other people and it was still eloquent and it was still beautiful language um because it was an artistic text that other people were meant to read but um you know her version of better wasn't necessarily the same version of better that i had and that's it's uh you know again it's a question of context whether you're able to sort of allow for for that flexibility as well but i think it's important always to also let the students maybe whenever they can tell us what it is that they want to improve, you know, what it is that they want their text to be. Do you want the text to be clearer? Do you want it to be easier to understand? Do you want it to be more entertaining? Do you want it to be more um, smart? You know, and then maybe we can tell them how they can make it better along those mm. parameters, but not just this sort of umbrella um, term of like, better you know it's maybe it's a question of what it would mean for them to be better you know maybe with you know your 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 son for example like maybe the texts he wants to write are funny you know maybe that's really important that his texts are funny and maybe that's not a priority that you have when you look at his homework or something Mm. oh i mean in his case it's just simply writing the number nine and he was happy with the way he'd written (laughs) it whereas you know i wasn't but i'd like to talk about um language coaching next. I'm, I'm really interested mm-hmm. in that. And I'm sure our listeners would be interested in hearing what the difference actually is between language teaching and language coaching. But first, 
In today's educational environment, students and teachers are juggling a mix of face-to-face, -face, online and blended learning courses. Canvas by Instructure helps teachers navigate these diverse learning experiences with a user-friendly virtual learning environment that offers flexible access to courses and a consistent learning experience, all while streamlining everyday teaching processes. The world's best schools and universities are using Canvas to create dynamic courses, collaborate seamlessly and access actionable data that drives student success. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. Are you looking for lesson planning materials to kickstart the new term? We've got you covered. The Day is a global online resource that turns the news into lessons. We're offering listeners a free resource on Andrew Tate that you can find on thedaynews.co forward slash Tate. Inspire personal development and critical thinking for your students by downloading the Tate Debate today and feel more confident addressing sensitive topics with your class. Visit thedaynews.co forward slash Tate to find out more. Okay, so coaching, Sarah, people, yes. there are people who say coaching isn't a science. It's also, it's all wishy-washy. <laughs> Teaching is the science. What do you say? Yes. Ooh, wow, that's a big question. I'm not sure I want to get into the sort of uh, philosophical uh, front lines there. Um, I always think definitions are helpful only in as far as they sort of serve us. I think um, some of us some, sometimes overthink labels like, oh, mm -hmm. am I a language coach? Am I a trainer? Am I a teacher? So for me, yeah, what I do is coaching, um, but I'm definitely not offended when somebody calls me a teacher and, you know, even like vice versa. I, um, yeah, I definitely am also aware that coaching is very much a trend topic and that people are calling all sorts, all sorts of things coaching. Um, and maybe sometimes it looks like they want to call something coaching just so they can charge more money. Uh, but I think we've always had sort of charlatans and, um, uh, opportunists in, you know, in true. the world, and that's not you, you know. Yeah. Well, okay. So, how about let's let's turn tweak this a little, or let me tweak my question. Um, you coach, okay. Mm -hmm. um, your students come to you with their language needs. What is it that you do with them? that takes into account, as we were talking about here, you know, their personal language learning style, um, mm -hmm. their needs. And, and how would that be different from, from my standing in front of the classroom and telling my students, say, write better sentences, take out your three colored pens and your notebooks? Um, I think it's different in several ways. Probably the, the most striking one is that the relationship between the coach and the client is different in that, um, you know, as a teacher, sometimes we, we go into the room very much as the person who symbolizes, mm -hmm. I know exactly how to do everything. And I am here to show you how, you know, very often in a classroom, maybe you have a clear goal of passing an exam, you know, your students have to sit aisles, for example, and you know mm -hmm. exactly how to, how to get them there. Um, with coaching, especially also when you're working with professionals, like I don't really know the best way for, um, I don't know, this curator, for example, um, who's my client, like, I don't know exactly what will actually make her presentations better. She has to tell me that. And then together, we are going to find out the best way for her to do that. And I will be offering my expertise and my experience and uh, the tools I've learned. Um, mm -hmm. But she is going to fill all of that in. So like a lot of um, what coaching is, is just asking the right question and then getting the client to decide the best way forward. 
And this has a lot of advantages because, um, you know, earlier in the show, we were talking about the problem of like sometimes getting your students to do something that you want to do, <laughs> that, that you want them to right. do. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Will be really beneficial for them. Well, in coaching, if they have chosen their own thing. So, for example, if my client has says, yeah, you know, every week I decide that I'm going to, I don't know, work through X pages of this book because this is what I feel is the most effective use of my time if I want to improve my vocabulary. And then I check in with them next week. So how's it going with the book? Um, they are not accountable to me in the sense of, oh, I'm sorry, teacher, I didn't manage my homework. But they know that they are, um, they are accountable to themselves. And they have then a very, very different sort of sense of possibility of reflecting why it didn't work, why maybe the mm -hmm. goal they set was too high or too unrealistic, or maybe there was a different priority that week. And so the conversation about it and the way forward is very, very different. It's much, um, yeah, it's much more authored by the learner, you know. Does that make sense? Mm. I like that. I like what you said there about... Um, the conversation, I think, right? Um, yeah. I, I'm going to say that most of the people I know who do language coaching, they do it on a one-to-one -one basis, but sometimes you do it in small groups. But what you've got, right, is that you've mm -hmm. got a conversation between you, the instructor, I'm going to use just a neutral term, um, mm -hmm. you, the instructor, um, coming into conversation, coming into interaction, with your audience and mm -hmm. determining goals together. And mm -hmm. this is not something that we have in the traditional classroom because in the traditional classroom, you know, from primary school right up to university, um, the goals are set in advance, either mm -hmm. by the curriculum developer, the teacher, the school, or, you know, they've, they've got exams that they're working for. Um, mm -hmm. So there's no conversation, mm -hmm. right? Um, and also what you said about the accountability that they've set your learners, your clients have set mm -hmm. those goals mm -hmm. and they work towards that. And sometimes maybe they've come to that point in their learning dip and rise where they're in a dip, but they reflect mm -hmm. on it and mm -hmm. you review and see, hmm, where did it fail? What went wrong? So mm -hmm. what you have also, I suppose, in that in the work that you do in that sense is that reflection, isn't it? That reflective learning, because mm -hmm. I don't have the time and place in my curriculum to engage in that reflection. No, but um, sometimes it's maybe as an example, like to sort of bridge between those very, very different contexts that I'm aware of, because I mean, I, I have also worked at universities and I've worked with, with groups of general learners. So, I mean, I, I know other contexts beside one-to-one -one coaching as well. Um, but always bringing in that element of choice. So for example, let's say you're working on presentations in the classroom, right? Presentation skills, rather than, um, you know, like a top-down approach would be maybe giving them a phrase bank of like, these are good sentences that you can use in your presentation. I would say, um, I would tell the learners, however many they are, um, like for this week's homework, go out and find a TED talk or another kind of presentation online that you like, where you listen to the speaker and you listen to it and you think, this is what I want my English to be. This, mm -hmm. how this person is explaining things, how this person is, you know, using their voice, whatever thing that attracts you, this is my language model. And then mm -hmm. go into their TED talk and write down, I don't know, five to 10 phrases that they hear, how this, um, how this presenter is using signposting, for example, to get from one point to the next. They will be much more personally motivated, I think, to to use those phrases that they learned than, than having the phrase bank that maybe you um, you got from the book that you're teaching with. So I think there, you know, you see what I mean? Like there are always possibilities to, um, to let the learner choose what they want their English to be and like what model they're striving toward and then letting them collect the 
the things that they, you know, like sort of knitting together this tapestry mm. of what they want their English to be, because English is so many different things, right? And there are so many different models of um, how you can speak English. And I think getting them to choose, allowing them to see what it is that I find attractive, who do I like to listen to, you know, whose voice do I like, um, you know, how do I want to, you know, shape my sentences, what metaphors do I want to use? And then allowing them to bring that into the classroom and share that with each other, I think that can be really powerful as well. That's, again, yeah, it's it's essentially also the learner making these mm -hmm. choices for themselves. Mm -hmm. And like you said, it's empowering. It reminds me of something someone said to me about 20 years ago when I first started teaching English in Germany. I um, taught at Daimler Chrysler. It's now Mercedes. It was, you know, back mm -hmm. when they had the merger. And um, I was working with an American-based textbook and there were all these idioms in there and I don't remember, but um, specifically mm -hmm. it was the idioms. And the manager, so I was teaching a group of managers and he actually came up to me and he actually said to me, you know, um, that's all very good. It's all really nice that it's in the textbook, but that language, that's not useful to mm. us because we're, we do a lot of business with customers in the Middle East. Not that was back mm. early 2000s. He said, we do a lot of work with people in the Middle East and I actually need them to understand my English. And I'm not sure if that stuff in the textbook is going mm. to be helpful. And, and you've yeah. just hit the nail there on the head. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's always the question, like, is this English going to help them be successful? Because maybe some of you also have these learners, like, well, we have some learners sometimes who are these idiom nerds, you know, mm -hmm. and they come to class yeah. and they've learned a new idiom that week and they're like, oh, you know, he's, he's blowing his own trumpet. And then, you know, the seven other people in the classroom will just look at this person and think like, what are you talking about? You know, because they, they just don't understand this idiom. And so this person is just kind of using this idiom in this or they've been taught, Or they've been you taught know? in school that they've got to use idioms, right? And you have yeah. these these people who come to class on a, on a very wet and rainy day and they go, miss, it's raining cats and dogs. And, yeah, and you're trying to think, you know, the last time you heard anybody say that. Yeah, and for me, it's always like, yeah, of course, like use idioms until the cows come home, if that's what you want to do, but learn. So like something that I really emphasize when I'm um, working with that kind of person is learn to paraphrase your idioms, please. Um, you know, learn to uh, check and read the room and see, you know, are people understanding you or is this a good opportunity to say, um, you know, He's blowing his own trumpet. Uh, sorry, do you know that expression? It means da 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 da. Do you have uh, an expression in your language that means the same thing? And then this is a great conversation that you can have. Um, yeah, so use idioms, but please paraphrase them would be my advice, mm. for example. Yeah. Before we finish, Sarah, one last question for you. Do you, would you say that it needs, it takes a certain level of maturity for a person to find their own personal language learning style and for a person to be able to identify what kind of user of English they want to be? Um, no, I don't think so. I think it's never too early to think about what it is that you like, what it is that attracts you. I mean, it doesn't matter how early you go with kids, for example, you will definitely see some kids that are more into pens and other kids that are more into, into building blocks and, uh, you know, letting them go crazy with, with either of those. Um, and I think it doesn't matter if you have, um, you know, elementary school learners, anybody, um, you can always bring in this element of how do you like to learn? I know that I did it with my own English. Like when we started English, I mean, I'm not a native speaker of English. Um, and when we started, um, learning English in um, it would be first year I guess in the UK school system so I was like 10 mm -hmm. 11 years old and I was choosing my own methods I had no idea what I was doing at the time but I was just kind of inventing my own way of learning English that had nothing to do with what was going on in class 
Um, and, Look at um, you now. Exactly. Right. <laughs> um, and, and so I think, yeah, no, it's never too early because I was 10, I was 11 and I was kind of, you know, teaching myself. And I, yeah, like one last piece of advice there. Um, something that really, really changed the trajectory of my career, I think, was a few years ago at a conference, I heard Scott Thorngreen talk about polyglots and what uh -huh. we can learn from them as teachers. So polyglots, these people who speak many languages, not because they grew up speaking many languages, but because they learned them. So these, you know, annoying people that you see their YouTube videos and they can say hello in 20 different languages <laughs> um, and make the rest of us feel really bad about ourselves. Um, <laughs> But there is so much we can learn to these people because if you read their blogs, for example, like how these polyglots have managed to learn all of these different languages, it has nothing to do with what we do in the in, in the ESL world. Um, like nothing, really. The, mm. the methodologies are completely different. These people are um, just complete pariahs, complete punks, just like making up their own systems. And I love it. It's so inspiring. And I'm um, I've been like sort of borrowing uh, lots of things uh, from them and trying them out. For example, with my Italian, that basically started as an experiment because I wanted to use mm -hmm. polyglot methods. And that's something I would really recommend. Um, and yeah, share with your learners, um, you know, show them a video of polyglots, discuss it, get them researching how different polyglots learn different languages and see if they can find something that would work for them as a method. It's super inspiring. I like that. Let's finish on that. Find something mm -hmm. that will work for you for them um yes. i will no longer go into class with a notebook and three pens and tell <laughs> my students they all have to do that thank you very much sarah it's been lovely talking to you and i'll catch up with you some other day thank you thank, thank you, you for so being much with us. for having me Kanduk. thank you you're welcome bye 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 You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.